quick review from last week's sermon. We had a uh, great Sunday last Sunday. If you weren't here, you missed a phenomenal time where we just sensed the Lord's presence. And it was really centered on two key phrases that I hope stayed with you all week and I hope that in some way you had to use. So just quick review. Last week, the theme of Sunday morning's message was watch Jesus, and the second phrase was what? Go alone. So at the beginning of that sermon, I told you, some of you are going to have to really listen because you're going to need to use this this week, and I had some people come up to me and said, oh yeah, because my wife texted me, you know, go low, baby, go low on this situation that I'm dealing with. So how many of you would say, yeah, that was me, I had to... Need to be reminded this last week if something happened, I had to think in my mind, go low. Put your hands up, please validate my existence as your pastor, thank you. Okay, very good. And the rest of you, I'm praying for a really annoying person in your life this week that will remind you of your need to go low. I'm not, well, kind of, I might, for some of you, I might pray that because uh, God's interested in your sanctification, so am I, so is our church, and God can use anything to uh, create that. Today we're in the second part of John 13 where we extend this idea of what it means to watch Jesus and then for us to go low. And then he gives the disciples a signature command. And that command is to love one another. And so I wanna take last week, watch Jesus go low. Here's the next thought in this text. Might be going a little different direction than what you thought it was gonna go. And it's this, love your church. I'm gonna suggest to you that this text, when Jesus says you're to love one another, he's not simply meaning that Christians are just supposed to be loving to everybody in the world, although we are. He's specifically talking about the fact that these disciples are to love each other, and that by their love for one another, the world will look at them and be amazed and know that they have walked with Jesus. And so everything he's done for them in terms of washing their feet and now laying down his life is now meant to be brought into their community, the places where the disciples gather. And the way that they treat one another is supposed to be so Jesus-oriented that the world looks at them and is like, what in the world? And when I think about what that community is for us, it's this, right now, Sunday morning, people you're sitting next to, people you're gonna talk with afterwards. And today I want you to see that in the midst of a bunch of trouble or in an upper room moment that was a mess, Jesus gave a really important command that he wants us to listen to and wants us to live out. So watch Jesus go low and then he says, love one another, specifically for us, love the people in your church. We're in John 13 and we're in the upper room. This is the last week of Jesus' life. This is called often the upper room discourse. And the text begins in verse 21 where it says, after these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. There there is a, a cloudiness that has now come over the ministry of Jesus. This word troubled characterizes what follows. In fact, if you were to skip ahead and look at John 14, where we'll be next week, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. It doesn't mean don't start being troubled, but rather what it means is in your troubleness, here's what you need to think about. So what Jesus is doing here is helping these disciples to know what they ought to think, how they ought to live. 
So there's a troubling betrayer in their midst. There's also a troubling prediction of Peter's denial. And sandwiched in the middle of those two troubling realities is this command to love one another. So let's look at those three things. First, this troubling betrayal. It's so interesting to me that John puts this in his account of Jesus' life. He wants you to see that Jesus was troubled. I hope that's helpful to you, it's helpful to me. The word troubled is the same word that's used for how Herod felt when he learned that a savior, a king had been born in Matthew chapter two. It's used of Zechariah in Luke chapter one when he encountered an angel. It's used of Jesus' spirit when he was at the tomb of Lazarus. So the word has the idea of deeply held negative emotions that are connected to perceived bad events. So something, something bad's in the future and you feel something. Think of this as like non-sinful anxiety. There can be a sinful anxiety or you can just feel a level of anxiety because what's happening you should be anxious about. Like, to not be a little nervous about this would be to be delusional, like this is scary, like, or to have feelings of fear or agitation or being disturbed. What you need to know is that right from the outset here, Jesus felt this way. And I think it's important to acknowledge this because sometimes I run into Christians who they really think that real Christians never struggle with anxiety. Real Christians don't wrestle with fear. Real Christians aren't ever troubled. And what you need to know, friend, is that if you wrestle with fear or anxiety, it doesn't mean you're a subpar Christian. The issue isn't just what you're feeling, but the issue is what do you do with that? Here's Jesus, and Jesus is troubled. Dark clouds have kind of rolled into this scene. You know, there's just certain times in life where things just feel troubling, don't they? When I lived in Holland, Michigan, the month of February always felt troubling. Part of the reason was is because we wondered if the sun had gone away. You know, it was always cloudy, it was always snowing. And I'm just telling you, people in Holland, Michigan in February, like if you want to visit Holland, Michigan, go in May, but don't go in February. Because like they just want to say no about anything. We tried not to take any church votes on anything, because I'm like if I put out a ballot, is Jesus amazing? No. <laughs> it's cloudy. I mean, so people just have this this dark spirit that just kind of goes about them. Maybe that's starting to happen in your life. Maybe that's how you are here today. I'm glad you've come to church. So why do I start this way? I start this way because you need to know that Jesus issues one of his most important commands in all of the Bible in a moment that's not sunny. He issues one of his most important commands in a moment that's really dark. There's a betrayer in their midst and he predicts that Peter is going to deny him Verse 21, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Think how that went off in the room. They're they're, they're seated at, or rather laying around probably a U-shaped table, participating in a meal. Jesus has just washed their feet. He told them about how he did this in order to set a pattern and an example for them. And then he says, one of you are going to betray me. Mark's account of this moment tells us that the disciples felt incredibly sorrowful, and they begin asking Jesus, sort of in rapid fire succession, is it me, is it me, is it me? You can imagine just kind of what that must have done to the room in that moment. In fact, John tells us that they were confused, and so Peter, 
motions to, it says, one of his disciples who Jesus loved. That's likely John. And in sort of the setup of the room, as they're leaning on their left elbow eating, John is likely in front of Jesus' chest, and Judas likely is in the seat of honor to his left. So it goes Judas, Jesus, John. Peter, somewhere else around the table, probably learned his lesson about saying things too quickly, at least for that second. And then he, he says to John, ask him. Who is it? Come on, ask him. Everyone says, is it me? Is it me? And Peter's like, ask him. So the text tells us that John leans back to ask Jesus the question. It says, one of his disciples, this is verse 23, whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. Simon Peter motioned to him, verse 25. So that disciple, meaning John, leaning back against Jesus. So he leans back like this, and he says to Jesus, who is it? So in the midst of this moment, the disciples no doubt are alarmed. Jesus just said one of them is going to betray them, betray him. Jesus then answers, and we're not sure if he said it loud enough for all of the disciples to hear. Probably not in light of the fact that they just didn't understand what was going on. Jesus answered, it is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So he dipped the morsel and likely the, sort of the, the meal was being passed around. So what Jesus then did was a marker perhaps to John, but the rest of the disciples likely had no idea what was going on. It says, so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So it was a sign of of, of honor, a sign of kindness that Jesus did this. He not only washed Judas' feet, but now he's serving him. And then John, reflecting on that moment, says, after he, meaning Judas, had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. We don't know what John saw here, or if this is just a marker, like Jesus was kind to Judas, and Judas at that moment decided he's gonna betray Jesus or whether there was some kind of disfiguration in Judas's face or animosity that was clear, like something about that moment, John wants you to know, this, this is when Satan entered into Judas. And he said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. But then it's crazy, verse 28, now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. So. Like all this is going on and they don't know what's really going on. And before you're too hard on the disciples, remember the last Thanksgiving meal you were at where there was that conflict at the end of the table, you had no idea what was taking place, remember that? You got in the car and your wife was like, did you see what Uncle Frank said? And you're like, no, I thought the turkey was great. You know, you had no clue, right? This is kind of one of those things that are happening. You just have no idea what's happening on the other end of the table. The disciples are clueless as to what's happening and some thought, verse 29, that Judas Because Jesus had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And then notice this, John says, and it was night. That's not just to tell you what time it was. John wants you to know darkness has come. And this is a very troubling moment. There is a troubling moment betrayer in their midst. So the last week of Jesus' life, and there's all sorts of trouble going on. Then there is this troubling prediction. Jesus makes a number of statements that no doubt were unsettling to the disciples. Look at verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus says, here's something positive, 
Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Jesus is all about the glory of God and the glorification of the Son of God, and this language means that Jesus' mission, as he's been sent on earth to accomplish, is right in front of him. Remember John's word when he said in chapter one, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. No doubt chapter one is connecting to this kind of moment in chapter 13. He says, if God is glorified, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. and glorify him at once. He then says, little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now just imagine how that must have rolled. They'd been with him their entire lives, and now, Jesus Jesus says, where I'm going, you will not be able to follow me. They'd given everything for him. They'd followed him, walked away from family, from friends. They were the kind of men who had given up their livelihoods. They had decided to listen to what Jesus was saying, and now he's saying to them, they can't come. Skip ahead to verse 36. (laughs) Peter said to him, Lord, Where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. So Jesus is telling him that there's gonna be a time of separation. Peter then says to him, verse 37, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I mean, you gotta love the passion of Peter. Gets him in trouble sometimes, but then every once in a while, he like nails it. I mean, this isn't a a feigned statement. Peter loves Jesus. I mean, he's, he's, he's walked on water. He's seen the dead raised. He's seen blind people see. And he proclaims his love to him. He says, I will lay down my life for you. I don't think Peter is being disingenuous here. I think he really believes that he was willing to lay down his life. The problem is is that Peter, like all of us, often has like two parts of things that are going on in the soul at the exact same time. At the one level, he's super passionate about Jesus, but he has no idea how weak he is. He's full of emotion. It's like you could be in this gathering right now and you could be like all in about the Jesus lifestyle and then you get out and three minutes out the door, you're like a wicked, nasty sinner again. And that's why you need Sundays to remind you, your sins are forgiven, we're all wicked, nasty sinners. In fact, some of you, when we went through those confessional lists that that Jake led us in, that was super helpful. Because there's some of those sins that we forgot that we did last week. I mean, some of us came in like, I killed it this week. And then you heard the list, you're like, oh man, rats. You're like, oh, 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 no, I'm good with that one. That's my wife. No, 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 you know, I got got a friend who struggles with that. And you're like, no, 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 oh, oh. Oh, 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 and then you get to that text in Romans, you're like, thank God for the cross, right? See, the thing about Christians is this, we can be honest about the reality of our brokenness because we know the beauty of a Savior who rescued us. 
So don't look at the confession of sin as some sort of awful navel-gazing moment where you're reminded of how horrible you are, but instead it's just a, a kind of a wake-up call that there's always this battle that's waging within, that's raging within us, this, this battle that we're fighting, and Peter doesn't fully realize who he is. His passion creates a little bit of self-delusion. And so Jesus, just think of this moment. Jesus answered, he says, will you lay down your life for me? I mean, Peter, probably this moment was like, oh no, here it comes again. <laughs> truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Wow. One of the reasons that I love the Bible, one of the reasons I believe the Bible is true because there are accounts like this in the Bible. The New Testament writers do not make the disciples heroes. I mean, these men in that room, they changed the world. They took the gospel all over the known world. Most of them were executed. They preached to thousands. And yet, John puts in the account that Jesus says to Peter, you're gonna deny me, not just once, not just twice, but three times. Now, you need to know that Peter, despite his sort of lack of personal awareness and Lack of judgment, he's going to be restored back to an intimate relationship with Jesus after the resurrection. There's going to come a moment when Jesus appears to the disciples. He's on a beach. He cooks some breakfast. It's an amazing moment. And Peter is restored. So listen, there's going to be grace for Peter in the same way that, friend, there's grace for you when you're a follower of Jesus. Jesus doesn't expect you to be perfect. But he expects you to know who he is and to hear what he says, especially when times are troubling so all of this is context. So you got a troubling betrayer, you got a troubling denier, and in the middle of that, let's go back to the text that we skipped over, we find here this essential affections that Jesus wants to stir up in the hearts of the disciples. Look at verse 34. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We gotta unpack this because this is incredibly important. In the midst of really troubling times, Jesus issues this signature command that was given to the disciples and then needs to be applied to all disciples and especially needs to be applied on Sunday morning to a group of disciples who are gathered in the name of Jesus. And if there's anywhere that this text needs to be applied, it needs to be applied with the people that are in this room in this moment. So what does Jesus command? This represents what his disciples are to do while Jesus is away. Interestingly, he calls it a new command, but it doesn't, he doesn't mean like it's new, like it's never been said before, because after all, loving God and loving neighbor were an essential part of the Old Testament ethic. Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19, love God, love neighbor, so it's not new in that respect. What is new about it? What's new is its connection to the example of Jesus. He says, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. So what's new about it? What's new about it is the context of the disciple relationships and the example of Jesus they have just seen. 
And there's gonna be more to Jesus' example when he talks about later on what it means for him to lay down his life. For example, John 15 and verse 13, he'll talk about it, that no one has greater love than this, that a man should lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus is talking about himself and his example, but then he wants his disciples to live like that. So he's not just simply saying, Christians love people. That's true. Like, you ought to be the kind of person, if you're a follower of Jesus, that by what God has done for you in the work of grace, you ought to be a loving person than most people in the culture. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. What he is saying is that in the context of the body of Christ, in the context of where the disciples gather, that the way in which they love one another is a powerful demonstration that they know who Jesus is, they've seen his example, they have watched him, they've gone low, and as a result, they love the church. They love their fellow disciples. The example of Jesus and his sacrifice will inaugurate a new way to live. Jesus is gonna set in motion what's called the new covenant where now obedience, instead of coming from the outside, comes from the inside as the spirit of Christ helps people to know how to fulfill the heart of the commandments. Which is why when the Apostle Paul, later in the book of Galatians, writes about behaviors that Christians are to emulate, he lists things like love, joy, peace, patience, and he calls them the fruit of the Spirit. So the idea of loving one another is so critical that when John writes a letter called 1 John, here's what he says in the third chapter of that letter, verses 14 and 16. He says this, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Not just because we love, but because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So, The kind of love that Jesus has in mind here is not just to be a loving person in general, but specifically to love other people, the people that you worship with, the people who are part of your own church, the people that know you. His idea is that there's to be this internal community within the culture that says something powerful to the world. So that's why love matters, because of what he says next. Look at verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You might think in your mind, wait a minute, Mark, does that mean that if I have a friend who's not a part of this church and he's a brother in Christ, that like, I shouldn't love him? No, 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 you, you absolutely should love him. What I'm talking about is the fact that there's a dangerous reality with contemporary American evangelical large mega churches, which is you can come in the context of gathering together and if you aren't known and you don't love, then what in the world is this? That's the point. Today at four o'clock, there'll be like 78,000 people gathered at Lucas Oil Stadium. And they're all there with the same common purpose, but that community has to look different than this community, not just by the sheer scale, but also by the very nature of what it means to be a part of that community. 
You see, if a church is known in the community just because of its size or its generosity or its living on mission in terms of what it does, all those things aren't necessarily bad. But if a church isn't known for the way in which they love one another, Jesus says that church isn't going to be anything different than any other gathering in the world. Now, why is this important? This is increasingly important. It always has been important because human beings, by our very nature, we don't create loving communities easily. What's more, does anybody else sense that in the context of our culture that people are getting more and more angry? Do you just feel it? It's just in the air we breathe. It's in how we drive, how we talk, what we write. I mean, I legitly think that there are producers of news programs who think, ooh, let's get this person on and this person on because they'll go after it and we'll put, it's like, it's like rhetorical cage fighting. Let's put that in the middle and just watch it go. They just argue and yell at each other and talk over each other and we call that news or entertaining or entertainment for that matter. I read a fascinating article this week on the increasing tribalism of our culture. And the article suggested something, and you test this to see this is true. Just think about this in the realms in which you live. The article suggested that this has always been true of human beings, but it's especially true right now that presently people are not so much rallying for a cause or a party that they believe in as much as they're banding together against a common enemy. Let me say that again. The people are not so much rallying for a cause or a party they believe in as much as they're banding together against a common enemy. Like they don't wanna know if we all believe the same thing. We just wanna know if we believe one thing together, we're against them. Like I hate them, so let's be together. And together we're gonna hate them. Like that, they can't win, they can't be in control, they can't whatever. Give you a non-volatile example, at least for some of you. So if you're a Colts fan, it's just assume that you just don't like the Patriots, right? It's just assumed, okay, right? And so, right, right, no, 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 no. So, and you especially don't like Tom Brady. Like he's like the, the satanic manifestation of all that's evil, right, with, with the Patriots. And so if, you're, if you like don't like the Patriots, or if you just don't like Tom Brady, and forgive me if you, you do, you're, you're welcome here, we're you know, unity in diversity, that's our theme, right? So, but, but when you look at the TV and you watch a game, you just think the refs always call it Brady's way. Every call goes his way. And then you think the Patriots are constantly cheating everything they've ever won. They've always they cheated this and cheated that and cheated this and cheated that. And then, like if anybody beats them, you, you don't care how they won. I mean, if they stole it or if it was, they cheated, who cares if they cheated? Because all we care is the cheaters didn't win, the Patriots, right? And so you justify all kinds of ungodly or other things over here because you just don't want this, whatever happens, these people can't win. I'm just telling you, in our culture, what's true in athletics is true, it feels like, in business. It's true in education. Friends, I'm telling you, in the spaces in which I operate, it's true within religion and evangelicalism. Like the tribes, they're incredible. And it's sort of like everyone starts from, here's the tribe that I'm in, and once I decide that, then I figure out what truth I want to believe. And then my attitude and actions reflect what my tribe affirms or believes. It's also true in politics. So why does that matter? 
Because fear and anxiety and anger seem to be in the air these days. And then you just throw in a little bit of gas of social media megaphone in the mix and whoo, you have a polarized, angry culture. You see, what you need to know is that part of the reason for this, according to the article, is that we are most comfortable when we are in groups of people who think and act in a similar manner. We, we, we just are. For instance, I went to a, an event on Thursday night, and I walked into a room, and I didn't know hardly anybody in the room. And you know that kind of junior high feeling you have? I mean, it never goes away. You're like 48, and you're walking in like, mm, you know. <laughs> I don't know anybody here, it's so awkward. You, know, you look it around and somebody thankfully saw me from our church like, hey, we're College Parkers. I was like, oh, phew, come here, you know? And so, so, so we just stayed in that little group. We kind of formed our own little cocoon and just talked about College Park things, everything else. And not that we're gonna be exclusive to anybody else, but I found like, I was like able to breathe and my insecurity complex went away and I felt like a grown up again, which was good, you know? And, and what we do, here's what we do. When, when things are really rapidly changing, we tend to find what this author called tribal cocoons. We find people who think like us, who believe what we believe, maybe look like us, act like us, and we sort of hang out in that particular group. And then, in our present culture, with the bandwidth of technology and information flow, you can just also find information that keeps you in your tribal cocoon. And then you come to the body of Christ, and the question is, what is different about the body of Christ than is different than our culture? When Jesus says to his disciples, this isn't a new thing, this is an old thing, But because even the disciples, they were different socioeconomic groups with those disciples. I mean, Luke was a doctor. He writes, like you, if you were to study Luke's language that he used, it's super ornate. John writes like he's in eighth grade. I mean, the first book that you study when you learn Greek is first John, because it's like, see Jesus walk. <laughs> Jesus walked. Good. I mean, it's like that. It's like, like that level. And Luke's like super ornate. Like you don't want to try Luke if you're a first year Greek student, but John, it's awesome. You got John and Luke hanging out with Jesus. You got zealots. People are like, what we need to do is take up swords and get Rome off of our backs. You got other people like, no, 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 that's not the way. And these are disciples. Like they're in the same group hanging out with Jesus. And Jesus says to this group of people, by this, all men will know if you're my disciples, if you love one another. What a crazy thing to say. In the midst of all of the difficulties, in the midst of all of the, the, the challenges. And so he says, in effect, that communities where people love one another and act like it have always been rare. But church, I just want you to know they are increasingly rare today. So then what does it look like? What does it look like in the context of church? It looks like that you understand that part of the reason that we gather together and your role in that is to love one another. I mean, just think about why you came to church today. I'm thankful if you came because you wanted to sing and be encouraged and hear the word. Like, that's awesome. You should come for that reason, but not only that reason. I hope you came today because you want to see somebody who's hurting and say, man, how you doing? Can I pray for you? You want to express your affirmation to somebody else. You, you, you want to come and find kind of a, a refuge for your weary soul. It, it's simple things like, you know, one of the reasons we have name tags is so that people can know your name. I mean, you shouldn't be in a church where nobody knows your name. Maybe you sit in the same section, you get to know those people that are around there. Find a 
group that you can get involved in, a small group, a Bible study, something where people can know who you are. It could mean that after a service you invite someone to go out to lunch. But here's the thing, if church is just a gathering where you get and you go and you get and you go and you get and you go and you don't love people, that, that's, that's not gonna be healthy for you or for the advancement of the gospel. And here's the other reality, just so you know, when I came here in 2008, there was like four different groups of people in College Park Church. Like I can kind of predict four different groups. Now there's like 15. And that, that creates unusual opportunities and also some unique tensions. And an opportunity to apply this, by this all men will know that you're my disciples. If you love one another in the midst of a culture and a society increasingly tribalized, I think this text, this text says a lot. The Apostle Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians got after a really talented church because they had gone tribal. Look what he says. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but you be united in the same mind, the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers, which I mean is that each one of you says, here comes the tribes. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I follow Christ. And to that church, the Apostle Paul said, if you speak with the tongue of men and angels but have not love, you're nothing. If you have faith that can move mountains and you haven't loved, you're nothing. What he says to that church is you can be so incredibly talented, you can think you can change the world, but if you don't have love, you've missed the essence of what it means to be a church. So here's what I wanna do. We're gonna take some time in the Lord's table to reflect on what it means to love one another. And in 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul lists the characteristics of love. And what I want you to do, I'm gonna give you this list, and I want you to look at this list and ask yourself, not just do I feel this, I want you to ask yourself, do I like live this out with real people who are actually a part of my church? You may live this out with people who are Christians, and that's awesome, keep doing that. But the question would be, do you work this out in the context of people who are a part of your church? Are you patient, willing to keep going with hard people, kind, committed to responding with more grace than what people deserve, not envious? You don't want others to lose. You're not verbally celebrating your success. You don't think that you're better or see everything clearly. You're not treating people in a way that punishes. You're not being unreasonable and inflexible. You're not having a quick fuse or being easily offended, not being resentful. You don't hold an eternal grudge or keep a list of wrongs. You don't delight in the fall of others. You celebrate what's right and true. You're willing to personally absorb unfairness and mistreatment. You, you believe all things. Your first step is grace, not suspicion. You hope all things. You're confident that God can bring change and you endure all things. You take the long view. You don't quit. What Jesus intended when he says to the disciples, love one another as I have loved you, he intended them to be loving in the world, yes, but he especially meant Philip loved Peter. Peter loved John. Matthew loved Luke. He meant by the way in which they love, when times of troubling come, when the pressure of their culture, when they had the threat of maybe even being executed, when those things become true, the Apostle Paul said, this is what should mark the church. Jesus said, this is the way that the church is supposed to be the church. So we watch Jesus go low, and then we're called 
to love. And not just love everyone. And not just to love all Christians. We're supposed to love people that are actually in this very building. We're to love one another. So we're gonna receive the Lord's table, one of the most beautiful things that we can do together. So those of you who are serving, if you'd come at this time. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, you believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, this table, this moment is really important. It's something that we celebrate together. If you're not yet a Christian, this moment is something for you to watch and just learn from as we celebrate the most central and important truth of what we believe, namely that Jesus bore our sins, was raised again the third day in order that we might be saved. As you receive these elements, we're gonna scroll that list of the characteristics of love, and what I want you to ask yourself is two questions. Number one, do I look like this at all? And secondly, do I look like this with people in my church? You may be here and you don't know anybody in your church and that needs to change, like we gotta figure that out. We got some ways to do that. But the question I want you to ask yourself is as it relates to my church, do I love my church people? So we'll receive the Lord's table, hold on to it, I'll give you some instruction and we'll partake together.